Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to revisit a very interesting subject. It's about the Israel dollar bond program that is being promoted by Israel as a key way to fund. Now, Chuck Carlson, our founding director, has written some groundbreaking articles, and uh, we're going to review a a recent one that he's written here, and he's going to be presenting this at some conferences. We're seeing now some other groups that are picking up on this issue. So this is kind of exciting. It's been kind of sleeping, if you will, in the hinterland here. But now there are some more people that are recognizing that this is a way to challenge Israel. And I think, as Chuck likes to point out, he's kept it more or less from an investment standpoint. Some of these organizations want to uh, address it as a, as a human rights issue, the, the violation of the Palestinian rights and that's good, but most people are more concerned about their pocketbooks, if you will. And so if they see that the, this kind of investment has some very serious risk to it, then maybe it could be a powerful way to, to avert what's going on here. So what I want Leslie to do to read for us is the executive summary of this article. If you would, please. Sure. Charles E. Carlson, Executive Summary. The most practical way to cut off Israel's war and occupation funds is to end its dollar bond counterfeiting in the USA, which is an exploding source of its discretionary funds. This issue can be best addressed at the state level, where citizens have maximum leverage and the Israeli lobby has the least advantage. Those who try may be surprised at the extent that lobby has penetrated your state's politics. A recent conflict between the Israeli lobby and Colorado citizens who won a partial victory is described in this paper. Many who are sincere in wanting to free the Palestinians from their virtual and in Gaza literal imprisonment, have tried to influence Congress to end our $3.5 billion annual foreign aid to Israel. We have learned the hard way that Professors Mearsheimer and Walt told us about the power of the Israeli lobby. We have also learned that America's defense industry has been furnishing the war tools to Israel and is in full support of that foreign military aid. While the purpose of this letter is to expose the cold and hard investment facts, we cannot disagree with those who think the people of Palestine would also benefit from an end to the Israel I-dollar bond Ponzi, which would surely slow down funds available for the occupation and can do so faster than other more indirect efforts. 
Knowledge and concern over Israel's occupation and abuse of the captive Palestinian population is increasing. Witness recent published statements by Nelson Mandela that there can be no peace in the world unless the Palestinians are free. Some 15 Christian church denominations have called upon Congress to investigate the role of U.S. military aid in Israel's occupation. American concern about U.S. serial war activities in the Middle East and Israel's role in this violence showed up most clearly in the grassroots resistance to bombing Syria. But issues like foreign aid are little discussed in the bedrooms or at the breakfast tables in America. We are so used to deficits, we do not feel personal about money that is being given away. The raw power that it would take to overcome the Israel lobby and the U.S. military banking complex that support and benefit from foreign aid makes this slow process. I have written this paper from as pure an investment perspective, which was once my field. The facts are clear. Israel's dollar bonds are financially unsafe and undesirable for any, but those who wish to make an outright contribution to the state of Israel, all others should duck and run. Okay, thank you, Leslie, and thank you, Chuck, for really coming out with some groundbreaking articles that are now being understood by other people, as we mentioned earlier in the, the program. Yeah, yeah, we think so, and we want to encourage them. And people don't think about these issues. Of course, the foreign aid issue is $3.5 billion every year. The numbers are just astronomical if you add it up over 50 years. And of course, it wasn't always $3.5 billion. I think it started out as a billion and a half, didn't it? But it's added up to a huge amount of money. But Israel doesn't get all that cash. What Israel gets is credits, which they generally, by virtue of some understanding, end up spending with Lockheed and, and all of the defense contractors who make the weapons. And, of course, they end up with weapons, missile defense systems, all of this all stuff, stuff they end up with. It's not all spendable. But when they come into uh, Denver or Chicago or Ohio, they sold $40 billion of bonds to the Ohio government. At least temporarily, they have that whole $40 billion less whatever commissions they pay to their salesmen and their lavish sales, sales operations. But it's, it's pretty much cash in the pocket for the state of Israel, much more effective to them in uh, funding their system than the foreign aid dollars are. And uh, I don't think people think about how important a billion or two of cold, hard cash is to a little dinky country with 8 million people and only 10,000 square miles of space. So this uh, bond sale business is, is mushrooming. It's gone from a few a few dollars to a few million dollars to a few, finally to uh, the current estimated billion to a billion and a half a year. And that's, that's big money, especially since it's growing so very fast. And uh, 
since they have managed to get the approval of not only the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, and uh, the bond rating agencies who helped them out uh, immeasurably, but also they uh, have the legislatures of some 25 or 26 states, according to their account, that have uh, passed laws that allow, and this is Israel's words, not mine, that allow these states, each, each of these states, to buy Israeli bonds. Now, how much we can believe their statements about what the laws say, say uh, I can tell you that you can't believe it. You have to read them yourself. You can't take their word for what our laws are. But nevertheless, they have tremendous influence from all these states because people trust state governments to some degree, at least, at least the ones that aren't bankrupt yet. The reason I have taken the aggressive step of calling this a Ponzi scheme is that a Ponzi scheme is an investment game where the person raising the money uses the money he takes in today to pay off the investors from yesterday. And the key to a successful Ponzi scheme is continued growth. If you keep raising more money each month or year than you did the year before, then you can nicely pay off the people that want their money, keep the rest convinced that it's safe, and go on and have the rest to spend. Bernard Madoff, in his scheme, which I'm not sure whether it was the, the, the numbers are boggling, but I'm not sure that whether it was $16 billion or $50 billion. It was somewhere between, and I'm not sure. I think so far they've raised some, quite a few billions to pay back some of these investors. But Madoff essentially carried this out for 30 years by being able to continuously raise more money, and he didn't invest the money at all. He simply paid the profits out to people by giving them some of the new money he was raising tomorrow. Eventually, these schemes always come to an end. So far as we know, they always have. And Israel is basically doing that. In, in the 1950s, they raised about $24 million, sort of door-to-door -door among their Jewish friends and synagogues and others. Uh, but uh, small amounts, uh, savings-type bonds that matured in 12 years. Then in 1962, they had to pay off all of these term bonds at one time, and they were sweating bullets, as they say, uh, over whether they're going to be able to do it. But because they were able to pay off some of these bonds quickly, they were able to sell lots more, and the people who got the money just, uh, said, since you're uh, paying me, I guess I'll give it back to you for another 10 years. So Israel then managed to raise something like $124 million dollars, uh, it was either five times as much or ten times as much, I don't remember. But they raised uh, an exponentially large amount of money on the next series of bonds, also payable in dollars. And then in 1985, of course, Israel had to bankrupt their own shekel. They decided, apparently, to bankrupt the shekel and keep the dollar bonds going. And, of course, that's where they still are today, is raising money on dollar bonds. Chuck, um, you might, the situation is kind of fluid, because when these recent issues of these Israeli bonds, there was no provision for selling those back prior to the mature date of the bonds. But you've noticed something actually kind of interesting. 
Yes. Israel's bonds, unlike any other bonds issued, as far as I know, by other countries, certainly not ours, don't have an aftermarket. So once you buy them, you have them, and you have to hold them till maturity. Now, this is not an observation of mine. This is written in the prospectus that is approved by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. So people who buy these bonds are warned. That's one thing they do warn them of, is that you're going to need to keep these until maturity. Obviously, some people get nervous and they want to sell. So uh, Israel has, since we've actually been involved in writing about this, we've, as far as I know for the first time, Israel has actually come up with little informal buyback arrangements where they come out and say, by the way, uh, we're willing to buy back your bonds if you want to sell. Now, more recently, they've started a separate company. It's called IsraelBonds.org, supposedly a tax-exempt, I guess, organization. But uh, IsraelBonds.org, as as opposed to the sales company, IsraelBonds.com, says that uh, they're willing to buy back your unmatured Israel bonds. This, of course, creates a false sense of security because it gives people a notion that because they are willing to buy them back today, they'd be willing to buy them back tomorrow. Uh, The law of the matter is, no, they don't have to. And no matter what they tell you about their good intentions, anytime they want to stop buying them back, it's perfectly legal. It's not fraud. and You don't have any right whatsoever to sue the state of Israel. That's in the prospectus, too. So what you have is it's a sort of a Bernard Madoff wrinkle. Bernard Madoff always said to all his customers that were buying these securities from him, and by the way, you can always sell them back. And if somebody did want to cash out, Bernard Madoff cheerfully did that. I don't know if he gave people all their money at one time or how he did it, but he kept the majority of people locked into the Ponzi by convincing them they could always get out anytime they wanted, that it was liquid, that they had the ability to get out. Uh, so the Israel bond scheme has all these comparisons to the Madoff scheme. They don't, they don't look much different, except the Israel scheme is, of course, much, much larger, or, or will be much, much larger. Great. Any other questions for Chuck or comments? We're robbing Peter to pay Paul? <laughs> That's well, I don't know if we're robbing. I think the Israelis are trying to rob Peter to pay pay their occupation. Uh, okay. right. Maybe yeah. that'd be a way to look at it. Uh, uh, there's, uh, there's one other country, and we mentioned this in our story, that uh, is also selling U.S. dollar-issued bonds, and uh, that's uh, Argentina pretty sorry state and very much in debt and over budget and all that, but but very rich state compared to Israel. One of the major publications, Bloomberg, had a kind of a feature story about Argentina, and they called it, give us your real dollars and we'll give you our phony dollars. And what their article said is that Argentina was counterfeiting dollars by selling these bonds that are denominated in dollars. And, of course, they're absolutely right. The only thing they admitted is that Argentina is a small fish that's been only been doing this since 2010. Israel has been doing it since 1951 and is much, much bigger and much more threatening 
than Israel. Argentina sells these bonds only to their own citizens in Argentina. And nervous people that don't want to have the Argentina, I think it's the peso. Israel, of course, is over here in our territory selling them right here in our states. And what we what we like to see happen is we would like to see a decentralized effort, such as they have in Minnesota, where you have a local committees that actually get involved in the legislature and uh, go out into the legislature and campaign actively against this Israeli lobby that's coming into all these state legislatures. And we think that uh, we have the highest leverage at the local level and the least leverage at the congressional level where they approve uh, the $3.5 billion of Israeli foreign aid. So while I'm against the foreign aid, too, and we would like to see that end, and we do whatever we could to see that end, we think this is best carried out on the local level where you have the most leverage. And we had a little experience in that area in Colorado where no more than 20 people showed up at the legislature at two hearings, one in the Senate Finance Committee and one in the Colorado House Committee. I don't remember which committee it was now. And we testified there, and Israel sent in their lobby. They had lobbyists from Israel, and they had Christian Zionist lobbyists as well. We did not manage to defeat the bill. In fact, we know that the die was already cast before we ever walked in the door. But we did get one senator to uh, understand what we were saying about the economics, and uh, he understood about details that we expressed to him in, in letters we wrote, and uh, papers that I wrote, and as a result of that, he tied a little amendment onto the legislation that required Israel to play by the same issue as other uh, vendors who were trying to sell to the state of Colorado, and that required a certain rating, and uh, he knew, and we knew, and uh, so did the Israeli lobby know that they didn't meet that, that requirement. So the law says that the state of Colorado can buy these bonds so long as they meet a certain minimum rating, which they do not. Because of that, the state of Colorado can't buy the Israeli bonds. But this doesn't prevent the pension funds and uh, profit-sharing funds and all kinds of other local citizens from being conned into buying the bonds because the state legislature has expressed this support for Israel's bond issuance. So... The idea is to try to get other states involved in opposing the Israeli lobby in their states at the state levels and getting ahead of the curve. Well, I think that's an excellent point, Chuck. I mean, certainly, as you pointed out, the Israeli lobby was able to mobilize locally, but it, not to the extent that they do on Washington. So there's so much greater. It was almost, you, you were still outnumbered not gunned, but it was at least a uh, almost a close fight. And that's why I think your whole concept here is is excellent one. And we thank you for all this work that you've done in exposing this Israeli bond Ponzi scheme. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, 
Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.